0: Welcome to another message from the teaching team at Elevation Church Australia. For more information about our church, service times and locations, visit elevationchurch.com.au. How is everybody today? Good? Are you overwhelmed with Christmas parties and end of year shenanigans? Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, no, no one's inviting me. Yeah, same. Honestly, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) My name's Anna. I'm worship pastor here uh, with my husband, Ben. Um. And yeah, we're continuing our series called The Gift. The Gift, we all love gifts, but there is a great gift and that gift is Jesus. Um, But in this series, we're actually exploring, you know, the gifts that the wise men or the magi that they brought to Jesus and their significance and role in telling us about who Jesus is. So last week, Pastor Miles, he's our lead pastor. He introduced the series and he talked about the gift of frankincense. It's an insight sense and it's highlighting Jesus as the high priest, the high priest who has come to cover us and enable us to come boldly before God and next week at our Christmas celebration service, um, he will also be talking about the gift of gold and today I get the pleasure of talking about the gift of myrrh. I feel like I'm always given like the fun topics to talk about. Why not? But um, we're jumping in this scripture. This is our main scripture for this series and it's Matthew 2 and we're going to read from verses 1 to 12. Are you ready to read some Bible today? Yes! This is a church after all, not a TED Talk. Let's go. So, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king of Uh, days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So what's so interesting about the wise men is that they're not just astrologers. They were Zoroastrians. They're from part of a religion called Zoroastria and they, you know, they didn't just make a living, you know, giving out horoscopes to magazines, you know, when you flip to the back and find out what's my love like going to be this week. No, that's not that wasn't their job. They were well respected. They were highly deeply intellectual scholars and philosophers who used the stars to explain the world around them and they were well sought after. By kings and kingdoms for, for wisdom, and for them to see this star and recognize this is the sign that the messianic king has been born. You know that it it shows us that they weren't they weren't just you know guys looking at stars. You know they were very 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 smart and very well versed in other religions and faiths beyond their own. So we'll continue in verse three. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. The wise men just came and said, Hey, your Messiah is born and he's troubled. What? And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. For they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And this is a, um, this is taken from the book of Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. And ascertained, I'm hoping I pronounced that correctly, from them, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So the wise men they make their long journey from the far east. They they head to the capital of Jerusalem. They're like, "We have some pretty awesome insight for the Jewish people. Their Messiah that they have been waiting for centuries has been born." They tell King Herod, and rather than all of Jerusalem Jerusalem erupting in celebration that their Messiah had been born, they freak out. And they're like, "Oh, this is bad. This is not good. They are not excited." Isn't that weird? So King Herod, he gathers all the leaders, the scribes, the prophets. They're like, pull out all the Scriptures that tell us about the Messiah, where He's going to be born. It says in the Scriptures, He's going to be born in Bethlehem. So He sends the wise men on a mission to observe and report to Bethlehem to find out the existence of a new threat to His kingship. Very interesting, isn't it? Verse nine. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they make their way to Bethlehem. They see the same star, that same sign in the sky telling them that the Messianic King was born and they are pumped. They are so excited. Then they encounter the Saviour. They encounter Jesus. And even though they're not Jewish, even though they are Zoroastrians, they study the stars, even though all the Jewish people in Jerusalem weren't as excited as they were, they encounter Jesus and they fall to their knees and they worship Him. Wild. And then they present gifts that um, were typical stately gifts given to kings and rulers and, and royalty. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, very valuable gifts. Now, if we could just pause here for a moment and just imagine and agree, it's a bizarre scene, right? Like by this point in the life of Jesus, scholars conclude that he was about one to two years old. I have a two-year-old. I don't worship my two-year-old. There is nothing really that in my child that I'm like, wow, I'm going to bow and worship you. And I'm going to give you gifts of gold. It's more like, hey, give me gold back because I spent so much money on you already. But um, yeah, my son is too. He, and he's obsessed with cars cars, and dogs. He loves the movie Cars. Every time we watch it, every time there's like a racing sequence, like a race, my son, he pops up off the couch and he does laps around the living room and he's like, he pretends he's a car and he'll watch the TV to make sure the cars are driving and then he'll drive essentially because he's a car and he'll just drive around the living room. My two-year-old son also loves dogs. He loves dogs so much. He loves animated dogs, he loves toy dogs, he loves real dogs. He'll go up to any dog and just wanna say hello. He loves dogs so much, he wants to be a dog. I'll just be chilling at home and he'll come up next to me. I'm like, oh, this is cute. Then just lick my face. (laughs) Gross. That is the kind of person, the wise men, when they entered the house, could you imagine little Jesus? He's probably like seeing carts go by and he's like, I'm a cart. Like probably not. I reckon he was wiser than that. But that's the kind of person that the wise men encountered, knelt down and worshipped and presented gifts fit for a king. We can only begin to imagine the kinds of things that the wise men were thinking their whole journey from their hometown in the Far East to the little town of Bethlehem, from seeing an unusual star in the sky, theorising this must be about the messianic king of Judah, to bowing and worship to a young child, not an obvious king born into a royal family, but a king born from a heavenly one, And I believe that the journey of the wise men is actually something we can all relate to because they go through two distinct stages that I've noticed. The first stage is the wandering stage. You know, you've seen signs or flickers of God's hand in your life, but you're not exactly sure if it is, in fact, God. Is it just the universe? Is it just luck, coincidence? Is it the stars? You know, maybe you're going through a season of doubt or you're struggling to trust, you know, is Jesus really who he says he is, who the Christians say they, that he is? But you're in pursuit to discover the truth. There is something in you wanting desperately to understand what it's all about, the wandering stage. And then the next stage that we can observe is the in wonder stage. See, the wise men, they had an encounter with Jesus that changed their lives. And in this stage, you don't just know who Jesus is. You just don't know about Him, but you have encountered Him. You recognize His kingship, and your response is one of awe and worship. And so wherever you may be on the spectrum of wonder, our goal for this series is that as we lead up to Christmas, that we would all grow in our wonder of who Jesus is. You know, from wondering to wonder. Let's pray together before I continue. Lord, we just thank you for this time that we can gather and read your word. I just pray, Lord, that you'd be present here right now in our midst. Whatever we are going through, whatever uh, issues of doubt or whatever, questions, I pray that we find peace, we find answers, we find the truth today. That we encounter you today. That you be glorified today. Holy Spirit, we invite you in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned before, each gift that the wise men brought, they're not just valuable gifts. They're greatly significant in telling us and foretelling us who Jesus is and who he will be. And before I jump into what myrrh represents, I firstly wanted to present a question for us all to reflect on today. During Christmas time, how do you see Jesus. Think about it. There is a great movie that I love to watch and I'll preface, preface, it's not a Christmas movie. It's called Talladega Nights. Anyone seen that movie before? Will Ferrell, one of my faves. Love him. Side note about Will Ferrell, the movie Elf, great Christmas movie. That's 20 years old now. Oh, yeah. I'm glad I have your attention. (laughs) So anyway, this movie Talladega Nights, it's set in the deep south of the United States. You know, we have, and uh, we have a family, they're sitting around the dinner table and their famous um, father, he's a race car driver and he's just, he's got the family gathered and they're just trying to say grace in this scene And there are three descriptions of Jesus here. And I want you guys to be honest and tell me, share with the rest of us, which description suits how you see Jesus. And I'll say, there's no wrong answer, okay? So if you put your hand up, it's not like we're gonna write your name down and follow you up and be like, hey, that's really wrong. You need to fix that about yourself. There's no wrong answer, okay? So the first one, if we can get, here we go. Here's our lovely characters here. The first one is Walker. He is Ricky's son. And uh, he's quoted he, this is what he says. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting evil samurai. <laughs> That's how he pictures Jesus. See, Walker sees Jesus as the one who will fight his battles. You know, Jesus is he's fighting off evil samurai, evil demons, nothing can come against him with his holy samurai sword. Jesus is powerful. Anybody see Jesus like that? few hands, few hands. Good, good. Yeah, I see. I have a couple amens. Amens! Everyone's gonna have dreams tonight of Jesus in, like, ninja. (laughs) The next one is Cal. Cal is Ricky's best friend. Um, (laughs) This one's my favorite one personally. Oh, they're all my favorite. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t shirt because it says, I wanna be formal, but I'm here to party too because I like to party. So I like my Jesus to party. I like to think of Jesus with like giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. See, Cal views Jesus so highly, so supremely. You know, Jesus is almighty. Cal views Jesus so highly. Jesus has got to sing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner. He's smashing out in heaven, sweet home Alabama with his angel choir, Alabama. You know, that part, yeah. See, Cal views Jesus so highly, but he, but he doesn't really know why. Anybody else can relate to that? Maybe you don't really understand. You feel in your heart that Jesus is Saviour and Lord and King and you respect that, but you don't really understand, but you respect that. Yep, yep, yep. That one, that one, people a bit shy for that one, that's okay. And the last one is Ricky. As I said, he's gathered his family around the table. He's just trying to say grace so they can eat their dominoes and KFC. And, he, and this is his prayer. Dear Tony Jesus in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat bowed up fists dear eight pounds six ounce newborn infant Jesus don't even know a word yet just a little infant and so cuddly and yet so omnipotent anybody see Jesus like that But here's the thing. This is a typical Christmas view of Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, most of us probably have this view. Little tiny infant newborn Jesus. But we need to remember that Jesus was only a baby for a season. And my message today is to remind us of who Jesus is. You know, Walker, Cal, Ricky, none of these guys, none of them see Jesus incorrectly. They just see Jesus incompletely. My message today is called Sweet Baby Jesus. And you're probably thinking okay, how can the gift of myrrh change how I think about Jesus? Well, myrrh is, it's a valuable gum-like substance. It's mentioned in the Bible 17 times. It's occasionally used as an anaesthetic. It's used to embalm the dead. You know, in Mark 15, the soldiers, they mix wine and myrrh and they give it to Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. In John 19, we see how myrrh was used as an ointment to embalm Jesus's body for burial. And while a valuable gift, the gift of myrrh is also a morbid gift, you know, could you imagine Mary and Joseph's reaction, what it could have been as the wise men came and presented these gifts, like the first one came and brings in frankincense and ooh, that's a lovely smell, that'll help cover up the dirty nappies, that dirty diaper smell, gold, ooh, gold, that's gonna pay for Jesus' diapers, it's gonna pay for like a new cart because he's been sleeping in the one that's from the stable, you know, and then the, the final wise man, he brings in myrrh, my? Jesus has just been born. Why is he bringing in myrrh? Like coffins are expensive. Anyone who's ever had to, um, you know, organize a funeral know coffins are expensive. But if you were to come to my house at Christmas time and you were to present my two-year-old son with a coffin, you better be ready for me to, like, I'll, like, throw my shoe. Like, why are you bringing a coffin to my house for my son? What is this, What are you trying to say? I don't want to think about funerals and coffins. No parent wants to think about that. And I, my heart breaks for parents who have had, to, have had to deal with that. Now see, for Jesus, it's a, it's a different story. While he was born a sweet little baby, the gift of myrrh, while a morbid gift, symbolises a promise. A promise of suffering. It's a foreshadowing of who sweet baby Jesus who he is, and it can be found in a prophecy that was written seven hundred years before in the book of Isaiah. Where in Isaiah fifty three, I'm going to start at verse two. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as... And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That means we, don't, we didn't care for him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all so even though we are the ones who have gone wayward god lays our sin on jesus he was oppressed and was he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Within this passage, I know that was a lot. You know, the prophet Isaiah foretells so much about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And we see it fulfilled. If you can just pop that up on the screen, Billy. There's a bunch of prophecies that he's fulfilled in John, in Matthew, in Luke, just in that passage alone. And in verse 11, let me read it. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear his iniquities. So out of Jesus' suffering, he will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, clean, set free, because he has carried the sin. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, innocent, sinless, and yet born to suffer for the sins of others, born to die so that we may have reconciliation with God. He is the only one who can. He is the only one who will. And this brings me to my main point today. Jesus must suffer because God's love for us is God's desire for us. The reality is we are sinners. We are broken. We are very flawed people. You know what is sin? Sin to sin is to live and behave in such a way that does not line up with God's character, to go against it. To sin is to miss the mark of who God has created you and who God is calling you to be. And the issue of sin is is of a cosmic kind. And the Bible is very clear: sin leads to death. Sin leads to death of our identity, death of our calling, death of our mission. You know, in Genesis 1, it says that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Sin also leads to a spiritual death, separation from God, because sin is the complete opposite of who God is. That is exclusion from God's light, God's love, from all coherence. But a life of sin, a life separate from God, is not God's will for you, for humanity, for any of us. His desire is to see you be all that you were created to be, you know, free from the sin that robs you of who you really are and enveloped in His love. And the only solution is a substitutionary sacrifice. That's a pretty big mouthful. Uh, theological term but a great way to understand what substitutionary sacrifice is is through something that we all can relate on either on a first-hand or second-hand level and it's parenting and I'm sure many parents can relate in the first few years of a child's life you don't have one you don't have a life right they're heavily dependent on you. Like my son, Luca, as I said, he's two. You know, he's not toilet trained yet. We're actually waiting for Christmas break to toilet train him, so he's still in nappies. So when he goes number two, sometimes he denies it. We're like, Luca, do you need a nappy change? And he's like, no, and then you just, but you can smell it through the house. I'm like, nasty. But sometimes he'll be like, mommy, poo-poo. Like, and I'm like, okay. But he's dependent on me to change, to keep him clean. He's also, like, he doesn't know how to speak. He can't articulate the way that we can. You know, he only knows a few words. We worked out early on when he says la-la, it means water. And we're like, water. And then we try, like, the American way, water. And he's like, la-la. I'm like, okay. He just wants to call it la-la. Um, you know, and he, the most complex sentence is a three-word sentence, I want mummy, that's all he knows how to say right now, and a few other things, Um, but so I spend most of my day interpreting my child, he's heavily dependent on me to navigate this world at the moment through me, and through, through his dad, and so the only way that children will grow beyond their dependency into self-sufficient adults is for you, the parent, the caregiver, to essentially abandon your own independence for about 20 years or so, right? (laughs) Otherwise, you know, keep going, I heard. (laughs) That's a long time. That's a commitment. That is a sacrifice you have to be willing to make. So you, as the parent, as the caregiver, you have a choice to make. You have a choice. You can can either choose to suffer and abandon your independence in order to raise self-sufficient kids, or they're going to suffer. Potentially growing up still dependent, still needy, maybe a little stunted, That is what substitutionary sacrifice is. All real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. And the band can come up and join me. In Mark 10.45, Jesus is speaking and he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The use of the word for in the original Greek that the book of Mark was written in is "anti," And that means instead of, in place of, substitute. And when Jesus said the word, word ransom, the original word is "lutron," which directly translates to meaning to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. Jesus came to pay that kind of ransom for everyone. You know, he also says in his word, you know, those who sin become a slave to their sin. He came to pay a ransom for that. Jesus, the son of God, he lived a perfect, sinless life, then suffered and died, not just a physical death, but the kind of death that is the result of sin. He felt the death of identity. He felt the separation from God. He felt the exclusion from God's love. Jesus faced God's wrath so that we may be embraced by God's love. See, God made a choice a long time ago. Romans six twenty three. It says, "For the wages of sin is death." And we were either going to make the choice, uh, sorry, we were either going to make a sacrifice and face God's wrath, or we will have to make a, or He will have to make a sacrifice. See, God chose to make a sacrifice. Now you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, Anna, whoa. Hey, hold your horses. Like, Why are you talking about God's wrath? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Sweet baby Jesus. I don't like talking about the God of wrath. I want to talk about the God of love. I love hearing about that. Or talk more about tiny Jesus. Like quote more Talladega Nights. Talk more about that fun Jesus. Leonard Skinner Jesus. But Tim Keller, he's an awesome guy. He wrote a book, King's Christ, which I highly recommend if you, if you want to understand more about, you know, the death, resurrection, the life of Jesus. It's a great book to read and very easy to read. And he says, the problem is that if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. The more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms your beloved. I'm sure you have felt that anger when someone has hurt someone you love, right? If God is loving and good, He must be angry at evil. If you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. God's love for you is so passionate and fierce that He's angry at anything or anyone that is destroying the people and world He loves. And because of His passionate, unwavering, unrelenting love for you, He sent His Son to suffer in our place. So as we approach Christmas, how do you see Jesus? He's not just a sweet little baby. God could have sent a Saviour to us in a myriad of ways. And He chooses to send a baby. I love how scared and intimidated King Herod is of a little baby. I love that the wise men, they're foreigners, they're non-believers upon meeting Jesus, their response is awe and worship wild. And the Bible is very clear about who He is. And if you agree with me, I'm going to read these out. Feel free to respond. Feel free to say Amen. Feel free to clap. Do what you need to do if you if you can testify that this is who you see Jesus to be. He is the Almighty One. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the Advocate. He is the Author and Perfecter of our faith. He is all authority. He is the Bread of Life. He is the Beloved Son of God. He is the Chief Cornerstone. He is the Deliverer. He's faithful and true. He's the good shepherd who lays down His life for His sheep. He is the great high priest. He is the head of the church. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is the indescribable gift. He is the judge. He is King of kings. He's the Lamb of God. He's the light of the world. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Lord of all. He is mediator. He is Messiah. He's the mighty one. He's the one who sets free. He's our hope. He's our peace. He's our Redeemer. He's our risen Lord. He's our rock. He's the sacrifice of our sins. He's our Savior. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of the Most High. He's the Supreme Creator overall. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the door, the way, the Word, the true vine. He is the truth. He is the victorious one. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Church. This is who the wise men encountered that day in Bethlehem, not a sweet little baby, but a wonderful saviour, mighty counsellor, our God, Jesus in the flesh here with us to bring hope, to restore humanity in its rightful place with God. All of that embodied in a little baby. It is no wonder when the wise men entered the house, that is what they saw. That is what they were confronted with. Their belief system went out the window that day. And their response was one of worship. Their lives were changed forever. We can encounter that same Jesus today. We are not worshipping a little baby. We are worshipping a mighty King who changed the trajectory of humanity for each and every one of us. So church, I just wanna remind you, this is the mighty King who died, who gave His life to make a way for you and I to experience true freedom, true peace, true identity, because that is how valuable you are. That is how much God loves you. And if you agree with what I'm saying, just like the wise men, come on, why don't you stand to your feet as we sing, oh come let us adore Him and let's adore Him together church.